can grab your Bibles. We're going to be in, uh, starting in Matthew 28, where we started last week. We'll start in Matthew 28, where we were there last week, okay? So, in my message last week, I started a series that's following some insights I've been gaining recently in my scriptural study and in some books I've been reading on the history of the church and on brain science and its relationship to how we develop, how we learn to observe God's commandments, and how we are formed into the character of Messiah, into the character of Yeshua. So some of those books I've been reading are um, Resilient Faith by Gerald Sitzer, um, The Other Half of Church by Michael Hendricks and Jim Wilder. Um, But Combining that with some understanding of scripture and, and, and uh, my scriptural study, um, I've been really learning a lot about how we grow, how we grow in not just our knowledge of the word, but how we are formed, how we grow in our character of becoming like Yeshua. And so I started last week reading the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, Verses 18 through 20, it says, And Yeshua came up to them and spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Ruach HaKodesh, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay, so great commission right there. Matthew 28, it's, it's Yeshua speaking to his disciples before he ascends to heaven. And it gives us two commands there, right? It says, go, right, to go. We know how to go. And it says to make disciples. And, and in making disciples, that consists of two things. It says that we immerse them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Ruach, HaKodesh, and secondly, to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, all of Yeshua's commandments. So, of course, we have two steps. The first step isn't just immersing. You don't just go around dunking people in water, right? Um, <clears throat> we can all get wet. Um, there is history of forced immersions that is not good. It's very bad history in the body of Messiah of forced immersions, okay? That is not making disciples. Um, There's an implication of a process there that comes from immersion that involves evangelism, sharing the good news of Yeshua there. Um, and and, And this step of evangelism, this step of immersion, and then making disciples, it wasn't just for those disciples that were there with Yeshua at his ascension. It was not just for them who he was directly speaking to at that moment. Otherwise, the Spirit would not have spoken through Paul, through Rav Shaul later in his letter to the believers in Ephesus, about the unity of the body of Messiah when Paul said he gave some to be emissaries, some as prophets, some as proclaimers of the word or evangelists of good news, and some as shepherds, and some as teachers, to equip the Kedoshim, the Holy Ones, to equip the body of Messiah for the work of service. 
to the building up of the body of Messiah. So this is in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, I was reading from. That is a, that is Paul, the Holy, through the Holy Spirit, through Paul, telling us that we have an extension of that Great Commission. It wasn't just for those disciples there. But that God has equipped us to do those exact same things. Why? For the building up of the body of Messiah. For the work of service. So that we can serve others and build up the body of Messiah. And in those doing those things, when we proclaim the word, it's going to grow. Right? It's, it's going to grow because God's word does not return void. It's going to grow. When we have shepherds, we are going to care for one another. When we have teachers, we are going to learn to be educated, right? When we have prophets, we are going to be speaking truth in love to one another. When we have emissaries, we are going to have unity amongst many congregations, the emissaries that are watching over many congregations. Okay? They are things for us to be doing. It's, it's very clear that that Great Commission is for us today. That's, that's what I'm getting at. And John, I remember Rabbi John, he used to say this frequently to us, that it's not his job to do all those things, but his job is to equip us to do those things. And it is our job to be equipped, right? It is our job, and it is Zach's and Joe's and my job, to equip you to do all these things, taking that directive from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. So it's this, it's the second step of, step of teaching of discipleship that I want to focus on again today. That, and it's in there that new believers begin to obey and that believers are molded into the image of Messiah. So this is in Romans 8.29, how we're molded into the image of Messiah. And this work of discipleship is a long and slow work of character formation. It's character formation does not happen instantly overnight. Now, I will tell you, I have seen with some new believers some instantaneous changes in character by the power of the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. Okay? But overall, there is a significant amount of character formation that takes time. It's not a fast process, and it's a messy process. And if we're not doing the work of bringing someone into the likeness of Messiah through character formation, we're not doing fully biblical discipleship, okay? We can train them to know, but we also have to be training them in their character, in their doing of that character. So the question is, how does this happen? Okay, obviously this is a Holy Spirit-led change, first and foremost. We, we acknowledge that it, without the Holy Spirit leading this change, nothing else is going to happen, okay? Okay. Uh, I will acknowledge that first and foremost. But the question is, does the Spirit just make it happen on its own? Or does the Spirit use mature believers to do the work? And I will tell you that once in a while, as I said, it does happen on its own, but frequently, most of the time, God is using mature believers that are filled with the Spirit to do that work of character formation in new believers, in other believers, in and around us. And that's why we're called to encourage one another to, to in the body of Messiah. We are constantly, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, we are maturing and building each other up. 
in the Spirit. We are constantly doing that, not just for brand new believers, right, but for seasoned believers still, okay? We are growing in that way, but how do we do that? Do we just, do we just tell people the truth? Just give them information, download of information, and suddenly they are good to go in character formation, right? Do we just do that? The answer is no, we don't do that, right? Um, we don't just give them a list of do's and don'ts, okay? We don't just tell them what to do. Um, they don't just need the right information to begin to live rightly. Yes, they do, they do need the right information, but it's not, they don't need just the right information, okay? That's half of it. They need, half of it is that they, they have the right information, okay? So, and we know this, especially if you've ever raised young kids or worked with young kids in schools, you know that giving them the right information is part of the equation, but it's not the whole equation, right? I can't just give my kids a list of thou shalts and thou shalt nots and expect them to do it, right? They, they need to learn sometimes from mistakes, but sometimes um, by me showing them what to do. If I want them to, to dry dishes properly, I'm going to demonstrate how to dry a dish and what that means, and not just shaking the dish off and putting it away. That's not drying a dish. So I can tell you that some of my kids have thought that was drying a dish in the past. But I teach them how to do things and demonstrate how to do things and walk with them in how to do things so they will imitate me, hopefully, in doing those things, right? So this works for learning how to do dishes, as I said last week, this works for learning foreign languages. It works for math and problems. It works for learning new dance steps. And it works for loving our neighbors as ourselves. But here in Messianic synagogues and in churches around the West, leaders have really not taken character formation very seriously over the last several decades many decades, really, last few centuries. Um, There's a theologian, he passed away, uh, I don't know, I don't remember how long ago, not super long ago, Dallas Willard. Um, you might have heard of him before. Um, he believed that most congregations were focused on the first step of evangelism that leads to immersion, but they ignored or really watered down that second step of teaching. Um, he said that once the people were saved, they were left in a permanent spiritual kindergarten without a path to maturity. And he said that in the modern church, the modern church aims to get people into heaven rather than to get heaven into people. And that's really important to understand that if you have a proper understanding of the kingdom of heaven on earth now. Um, John used to frequently tell us, right, that that we are not just being saved to go to heaven. That it is so much bigger than that. And that's because we have this vision of heaven on earth, of, of bringing heaven, bringing the, the God's kingdom here on earth and living that out among people. It's not just something we wait until we die and go to be with God for. So, that's, that's something that has been a problem 
in the body of Messiah, especially in the Western body of Messiah, since we've come out of the Enlightenment period, since it was kind of changed in the Enlightenment period, where the mind was elevated during that time to the, being the most important part of our humanity, where we had this strong emphasis on thinking and reasoning. And, that, and that it was a good thing, too, because it created an environment that really, really allowed a lot of benefits to be developed for humanity, okay? So I'm not saying all bad things about the Enlightenment, okay? There were a lot of good things, except that the body of Messiah latched onto that also. In, in some good ways, but too much, that's what I'm saying. Too much, it did. Because what it slowly did was it said that we just need to be focused on correct thinking. And the importance of teaching people to love by creating loving communities was neglected. And so in this new world, it became more important to be right rather than to be loving to other people. That's where we kind of got to in the Enlightenment. More important to be right rather than to be loving. And so people thought of themselves, Christians, believers thought of themselves as the people with the right answers. And pastors, they trained for preaching the truth, which is critically important, but they didn't train in character formation also. And so congregations followed their pastors in this. In this path, truth and choice became the recipe for getting into heaven. And then we have the Industrial Revolution that came along, and it's breaking down relational bonds even more and more between families and communities. Over the last few centuries, we've produced a society that is less relationally connected than ever before. You know, multiple generations used to live together, and that's not true anymore. Multiple generations, they grow old in different, different towns, different cities. Uh, my parents don't live here. I don't live in the same house or the same neighborhood as my parents. My kids see their grandparents several times a year instead of being integrated into their, into their lives. Um, parents work outside the homes. Children grow up often in childcare facilities or in schools. Um, families, they don't work together very much anymore on, on things. Um, watching screens has increasingly become a dominant part of our relaxation time. Even as families, they replace this face-to-face interaction. And so we have being lost in us all of these right brain relational skills that I was talking about last week. All of these right brain relational skills are being lost. And that's not just in the body of Messiah I'm talking about. I'm talking about in the culture in general that's being lost. And so we have these practices, the practices that transmit all of these emotional and relational skills, they're being interrupted. And so culture is really losing full-brained relational skills, and the body of Messiah has been going along with it. We've been going along with it. And, and we've seen some impacts of that in the body of Messiah. Large denominational splits. Ongoing failure in high-profile Christian leaders that point to an over-reliance on promoting right beliefs and neglecting character maturity in the body of Messiah. That's what, that's what that points to. And so we, we have this breakdown of emotional and relational skills, and it's only accelerated, too, with the development of social media over the last 15 years, 
15 to 20 years, how since we've had social media really been taking off, and smartphones too, you know, we are connected more and more and more, but I will tell you that we are connected in a shallower, looser way than ever before too, to the point that it hardly even really is relevant. You know, I can go and like a picture on somebody and forget that I ever saw that picture of their family before, you know, from celebrating New Year's Eve last night. You know, and so we are, we are hardly connected anymore, even though we feel like we're more connected. Now, if you haven't experienced people, even me here in the congregation, being right at the expense of being loving, I would say you probably haven't been paying close attention. Um, and if you want more evidence of that, even outside the body of Messiah, just take a look at social media. Look at the comments. Don't look at the comments. It'll make you disgusted. Um, or in articles or on Twitter and look at people's replies and comments on there. Um, if you don't believe that people think that, that they can just say whatever they want to say, because it's their truth, and that's okay for them, because it doesn't matter if they're loving, you know, you're blind to that if you haven't seen that, okay? This is what our society is devolving into. This is not a good evolution. This is a, a devolution of our society, and, it, and, it's, and it's affecting the body too, okay? Don't think that we aren't affected by this, because we are. Okay? We, we are very much affected by this, and, some, and, and we have to rise above this in the body of Messiah. Okay? We have to understand that we have been affected by, by this idea that people think if they have truth, if they have correct thinking, then they're going to make good choices and they have good character. Okay? That doesn't necessarily correlate to one another. Having the truth or thinking we have the truth does not form character. It does not. And so we can see over the last several hundred years, there has been a widespread lack of character development, um, not just in our culture, but specifically in the body of Messiah too. So the question is, what's the plan for us in the body of Messiah to address this? You know, every group, okay, every group that really takes its purpose seriously, it trains its people. Right? We have the daughter of one of our members here who's off at boot camp right now for the military. Because the military uses basic training that every incoming civilian must endure to, in order to become a soldier. They have to go through that basic training. There's so much they have to go through and do. Every professional sports team has a strict training regimen in order to help an amateur athlete become a professional athlete. Even at my work, I have a training program and things that I do to train up people, even though they've already graduated with their engineering degrees, things like that. They, in, they know how to do some stuff, but they don't know how to do everything and specifically what I'm working on. So we have a training program to help bring them up to speed, help them to do and know how we operate at my work. But what do we do in the body of Messiah to help them? You know, 
we, have, we help train people. You know, we've started, you know, we have, we have some classes, you know, our Bar and Bat Mitzvah class and our Hebrew class and some other things here at Remnant of Israel that are really good. They're primarily left-brained training programs, though. They're, they're teaching knowledge, which is excellent. We should do that. But it's not truly focusing on character formation. You know, Dallas Willard, he suggested that the answer to how one forms character is that we would follow, as believers, in the spiritual disciplines. Okay, so spiritual disciplines being like scripture meditation, um, solitude, silence, fasting, prayer, service, and celebration. These are all different aspects of spiritual disciplines that Dallas Willard would suggest. And, and those are all important, and they're good. And in fact, if we would do them, I think that our character will change to a degree, but they are missing some things. And that one thing that they are, that even those are missing is some right brain relational skills. And we actually see this in one of Yeshua's teachings and his disciples, and that's where I want you guys to go with me. In John chapter 14, if you go with me to John chapter 14. Starting in verse 22. John chapter 14, verse 22, it says, Judah, not the one from Creot, said to him, Master, what has happened that you are about to, to reveal yourself to us and not the world? And Yeshua answered him and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him and will come to him and make our dwelling with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him and will come to him and make our dwelling with him. I'm just rereading in verse 23 there. I want you to notice the order there in John 14. The disciple, he wonders why Yeshua doesn't reveal himself to everybody. And so Yeshua says that he reveals himself to those who love him. Anyone who loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. He's, Yeshua is starting with love in this. Because love is the first step. We love Yeshua and we will obey him. When we do not love Yeshua, we will not obey him. And a left-brain view of Yeshua's teachings would conclude that if we, that we need to choose to obey, and this will prove that we love Yeshua. But this is exactly backwards. If we want to obey Yeshua, I want to focus on the right-brain relational skills that help me to love him and to receive his love, and then my behavior will take care of itself. I will begin to obey him because I love him first. And I know that he loved me first. And I've experienced that love. God designed our brains to change through love. He didn't, didn't, he didn't design our brains to change through drilling in the right information. And, I, and I've definitely experienced this in the raising of my children. Okay, how many times have, 
Have you guys dealt with a child, maybe, in the past, some of you who, in, the, in the further past than I have, and have had a child who is very upset about something? Is that the moment in which you can speak into them the truth, the information that they need to know? The answer is no, right? When they are very upset about something, their mind is not ready to receive the information, the truth that they need to know about their behavior or whatever it is, right? It's until you love them and they are in that right relationship with you that they are ready to receive that truth and that knowledge about their behavior, about whatever it is that we're trying to correct. It's the way God designed us. He designed our brains to work in that way, that we change through love. But this change through love, this type of working on these right-brained relationships and developmental skills, it's really slow. It's really messy work. And character formation is really hard to quantify, too. Um, And so most congregations, most denominations, they don't focus on this. So we focus on numbers, things that are quantifiable. How many people are there? How How much money is given in the offering? How many baptisms have we had? Those are the kinds of quantifiable things that are easy to do, easy to look at, we, but they don't focus on character formation. Now, if we were to try and quantify Yeshua's ministry here on earth, he spent about three years here on earth, um, try and quantify that to measure the progress over his ministry, I bet you would look at it and the numbers would not be favorable towards him. The numbers of his time here on earth would not be favorable. They would not look good. But he did not ever take his eyes off his responsibility. He was doing this full brain training for three years with a small group of people, teaching them in both truth and in character formation. And he was implanting into his disciples as he walked with them. And he was teaching them how to live out the kingdom of God on earth through his example. So that when he was gone, they could go and live it through the power of the Spirit in them. And they could go and do it, and that's when the multiplication would happen. That's when the, the numbers would start to come in, so to speak. Now, you can't do that in a spreadsheet, which really frustrates me as an engineer, because I love spreadsheets. <laughs> okay, Spreadsheets are helpful for some things, but for right-brain discipleship to train people to live in the power of the kingdom of God on earth, you can't use a spreadsheet. They're slow and messy, okay? The relationships are, okay? So we, we who love spreadsheets, we just tend to stick to left-brain things, okay? Things that we can understand, things that we can control. And we figure that if it works for some and not for others, well, we, we, might, we might get a few and we might get some, but it might not work for everybody, so we'll try a, a new program, a new left-brain training, and it'll work for some other people. And, and that's what we've tried, but it doesn't work for everybody, and often the reasons it doesn't work for people is because their brains aren't ready to receive the teaching. Their spirits aren't ready to receive the teaching because they're missing out on love. They're missing out on joy. They don't have, they have a very low joy. They're, they're isolated people, or they, have, they don't have a loving community around them, or they're, they are 
very poor in their identity formation. Or there's other obstacles in their way. There's unhealed trauma in their lives. Okay? A lot of things in the way that are, are help, getting in the way of them absorbing the truth, the left brain training. Okay? And so what we need to do is attack that, those obstacles, with right brain development, with this character development. I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples that were shared in this book. Um, the other half of church, there was two men, um, one named Chris and one named Greg. So Greg was a new believer, and uh, he had never read the Bible. And so um, he started a, a Bible reading plan, and he met monthly with his pastor to go read the Bible together and to talk about it and to talk about questions. His progress was up and down. And some months he would come and have a lot of questions and be excited about it, and sometimes he would come and admit that he hadn't even read, done the reading that month. Um, and it was just kind of hit and miss, up and down. And, and he was encouraged by his pastor, hey, don't give up, you can do this. Um, and, and, and so Greg, he didn't give up, and he grabbed three, three other people, and he's like, hey, let's do this Bible reading together. And so they, the four of them, did this Bible reading together, and, and in, in a very short period of time, they had read through the whole New Testament, um, they were really getting into it, and, and he was so excited about it. He said, now when the pastor teaches on Scripture, I realize that I already know that verse. And he's just getting really excited about it, um, and how different he feels after reading the Bible every day. So there was, that's one example. And then there's another example of a guy named Chris. So Chris was a believer, or grew up in a believing family, and yet um, the pastor realized that Chris didn't know the Bible very well. He, he grew up in a believing family, but he never had really learned Scripture. Um, and, and so when the leader, um, the pastor challenged Chris to read the Bible, to study Scripture, Chris gave a look on his face like he was about to be tortured. Like, <laughs> I can't do this. Um, and, uh, and, and Chris distanced himself. And uh, later he shared that he had had several bad experiences with pastors who were pressuring him to do things, including reading the Bible. But he had a mental block on reading the Bible. He had a low level of joy in his life, and he had painful memories in his life from interactions with previous pastors. And so he, he, even the suggestion of a Bible reading plan really tripped him up and challenged him again. That spiritual discipline of Scripture study didn't work for him like it did for the other guy, because his heart was fundamentally blocked. He didn't have good soil in his life. His soil was depleted. If you're a gardener, you know what I mean when I say that. When you have bad soil, you can't grow things in bad soil. I know that uh, we've talked with our friends, the Diltzes, and their organic farm that they have, and how many years they've been working to replenish to the soil that they've, they've brought, I don't know how many thousands of tons of, of manure and things like that to spread over their, um, their farm there to replenish the soil, to get it to where it can actually grow good crops again because it wasn't a good soil. It was depleted when they bought it. And that analogy of good soil and of depleted soil, that's an excellent analogy for us in thinking about our spiritual training and our character development. How do we add nutrients back into our spiritual soil? 
How do we do that? And to start us thinking about that, I want you to think back about when you first encountered Yeshua. I want you to think back. Close your eyes if you need to. Think back about when you first encountered Yeshua. Or maybe if you can't remember that, think back to a, a really positive encounter that you had with Yeshua. What did it feel like? Perhaps it was like this warm, emotional light that you felt. Maybe a mixture of hope and excitement inside of you. You could probably feel it in your body. You could feel the light of God's face shining upon you in that moment. You remember last week? Don't you, you can open your eyes now if you've, if you've closed them. I want you to remember last week um, when I, uh, I talked about the definition of a joyful relationship. I'll remind you, if you've forgotten, uh, the joyful relationship being the way that you feel when you see the sparkle in someone's eyes that conveys that I am happy to be with you. That sparkle in their eyes, when, when you know and somebody's happy to be with you, you can see that sparkle in their eye, that smile on their face. It says, I'm happy to be with you. That's probably the way you felt the first time you met Yeshua or in a recent good encounter with him. You experienced joy. Yeshua's eyes were sparkling at you, and this is not just a coincidence, okay? God designed our brains to run on joy. God designed that joyful relationship between us and him intentionally because we, our hearts, run on joy. It's like cars run on fuel or on full batteries nowadays, I guess, because we're switching to electric cars too. Um, the, the battery fuel, right? Uh, Jim Wilder, one of the authors of this book, The Other Half of Church, he said that our brains desire joy more than anything else. Now, we might call them in, in like the scientific community like dopamines, right? Our brains kind of go after, they seek after these dopamines, but really this is joy. And it's joyful relationships that we're desiring. That's what our brains want. And as we go through our day, our right brains, they're scanning our surroundings, looking for people who are happy to be with us. They're looking for people who are happy to be with us. And sometimes you know when you're going to go into a situation where somebody's going to be happy to be with you. So when I come home from work every day, I look forward to it. Because my brain is already getting excited because I'm going to walk through that door and I'm going to have five people that are happy to be with me. Which is something joyful for me. I have a joyful relationship with the people in my house. And I get excited about that because that's how God designed my brain. And God designed us to have relational joy with him too. I want us to look in 2 Corinthians. If you go with me to 2 Corinthians. Chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, for God is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Messiah. 
I'll read that again. For God, he said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Messiah. I want you to hold on to that thought. Go into your Tanakh to Numbers chapter 6. This is the one you know very well. You probably could say it without even turning there. Numbers chapter 6, verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you, his face toward you, and grant you shalom, grant you peace. Why did I connect those two passages there? The priestly blessing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. God's light is in his face. God's face is the key there. His light is in his face. When he turns his face towards us, it's a blessing. That's what we call that passage in Numbers chapter 6 is the blessing, right? The priestly blessing, the ironic blessing. It's a blessing when God turns his face towards us. When we think about the Lord make his face shine upon you, that to me sounds like the neurological definition of joy. When God's face shines upon us. It sounds like the definition of joy. God designed our brains for joy. That's what I'm telling you. And he wants us to live and in the glow of his delight. He wants us to reflect his light, to enjoy and bask in his light that comes from his face. And this blessing expresses a joy that can be paraphrased. May you feel the joy of God's face shining upon you because he's happy to be with you. And you feel the joy of God's face shining upon you because he's happy to be with you. Don't you like being around people who are just happy to be with you? I do. And isn't it comforting to know that God takes joy and he's happy to be with you? He's happy to be with you. I love that. This idea about joy, though, has really been misunderstood for a long time. In our English translations, in our Bibles, they don't really do us any favors. Even the TLV, it, it does not help with this sometimes, okay? Because joy sometimes disappears from our Bibles in the English translations. We see it clearly in the Hebrew, but then it gets lost in translation. Um, in Psalm 89, uh, in uh, verse 15 or in verse 16, if you're in the Tanakh, in the Jewish version, um, in the TLV it says, blessed are the people who know, who know the joyful shout. They walk in the light of your presence. Blessed are the people who know the joyful shout. They walk in the light of your presence. In Hebrew, you see the word panecha there. What does that mean, Doreen? Face. That means face. That's the, the word presence. Who walk in the light of your presence. The word presence is panecha face. So literally, that would mean in the light of your face, who walk in the light of your face. Blessed are the people who know the joyful shout. They walk in the light of your face, Adonai. Okay? This is not an isolated example. This happens over and over and over in our English translations. Um, this is a side note plug for Doreen's Hebrew class. So uh, learn Hebrew with Miss Doreen and uh, and you can learn to see these sort of things in Scripture. Um, 
It's a, it's a great thing. God connected his face with joy in the Bible. Okay, Psalm 1611, there's another example. Um, it says, in your presence is the fullness of joy. In your presence is the fullness of joy, except um, the original Hebrew would say, in your, in your face is the fullness of joy. In God's face is the fullness of joy, or the abundance of joy. An abundance of joy is with your face, the fullness or abundance. Psalm 21 lists the blessings of the kings of Israel, the blessings of God over the kings of Israel. And in verse 6, the psalmist proclaims, you make him joyful with gladness in your presence. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. The word rendering for Hebrew would be, you make him happy with joy with your face, because his face is shining upon you, because God's face is important here. God's face brings us joy in Scripture, but God's face often gets erased in translations. So it's helpful to look into the Hebrew and see some of this. Um, they do this, you know, I, I'm not doing this to bash on our translations, okay? Um, they do this to make the text more readable. And unfortunately, when they do this, though, an important bodily sensation is really lost. Um, when we think about face, it's different than presence. To me, presence is just, it's like you're, the, you're present, you're there, which is not bad, but face is more meaningful to me. Like it's God's face shining upon us. He designed facial recognition into our circuitry. We see somebody's face. How many times you can remember somebody's face, you might not remember like their foot, but you remember their face, right? Because <laughs> God designed us to have facial recognition, right? He designed us, I know, you laugh at that, and it's a little bit ridiculous, but he designed us to have facial recognition with each other. That's how he designed us. It's in our brains. It's linked to our joy. That's what brain science has revealed to us, that this joy sensation is, is created in that way, and it's really crucial for our emotional and relational development. Joy is. Um, is so crucial, and, and, and studies have shown how crucial it is, especially in the early years of a child's life, but it's, it ne the, the criticality of it never goes away either, and it can be built even in much later stages of life. It can continue to be built, which is really encouraging. Um, you know, we look to the face of another person to find joy. When we do that, that fills up our emotional gas tank. It does. When we have that connection with other people and have that joy, it's filling up our emotional gas tank. But the face is the key. So when we read the Bible and we understand God's face is on us, that's meant to fill us with joy. When we understand that God's face is on us, it's meant to fill us with joy. And we know, again, as I've been saying, joy is primarily transmitted through the face, really through the eyes then through our mouth and our voice, our tone of voice projects our joy too. The voice does, and thus we, when we speak to people and the tone is super important because I can say, good to see you, Zach. Or I could really, I could shout. Like I said, I texted Zach, happy birthday, Zach, period. 
on Sunday. Like, I, there was no exclamation point, nothing after it. <laughs> so you can read something into that, right? No happy face, nothing. I just said happy birthday, Zach. Like, you can read that in a monotonous tone, like, or in a depressing tone. Or you, if I was to, like, send all kinds of emojis and exclamation points and whatever, I could emote some happiness in a tone over a text, if that's possible. Um, you know, or, again, that's one way, but, again, the other way, I mentioned the feet earlier, you know, we connect two faces, Try and look at somebody's feet and see if you can connect the joy next time you're talking to them and you just look at their feet. And you, can you connect with joy with your feet versus their faces? You can't. You can't. You can't connect with, you can't connect with joy because God designed us in that way to have that joy that's connected with people's faces. And, and that's how joy is transferred. And that's how it's relational. So it's what we feel when we're trying to be, when we are with somebody who's happy to be with us. That is joy. So joy does not really exist outside of a relationship. You know, we can try and fake it with dopamine-inducing entertainments, but it's not real. Real joy comes first from a relationship with God and then with others, too. It's important to us and it's important to God. And he designed us this way. So reading through the Bible and replacing joy with the concept of God's face lighting up, lighting up when he sees us, and it gives us a better idea of what joy is meant to represent for us, how it means and how it should, what it means and how it should feel in our bodies. For example, if we were to go back to Psalm 16 and 11, and using the fuller definition of joy, in your presence then the fullness of joy becomes when your face lights up because you're so happy to be with me. You fill me up with joy. In your presence is the fullness of joy, but when your face lights up because you're happy to be with me, you fill me up with joy. That makes a little bit more fuller meaning. Okay? This is a little bit how we came about with like the... Uh, What's that um, expanded version of the Bible? The, uh, the Amplified Bible? Yeah, the Amplified Bible. <laughs> yeah, this is like a, an Amplified version here. Um, in John 15, Yeshua talks about how, he, about how he loves his disciples with the same love that the Father has for him. And he says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. He says that in John 15. So if we replace joy there with the fuller definition, Yeshua's statement would be, my father's face lights up when he sees me because I am loved by him. I am so special to him. I'm telling you this, disciples, so that you will feel how loved you are, how special you are to my father and to me. Our faces are shining upon you with delight. That should give you joy. How do you feel about that? I can feel that in my body when I picture that. When God's face is shining upon me. But we kind of lose some of these bodily sensations in our modern biblical translations. Even words 
that are strongly connect, other words that are strongly connected to our bodies, bodily sensations are translated in other ways too, um, in more cerebral or conceptual ways. One example of this would be um, when Yeshua is walking down the road and, uh, and he hears blind men crying out to the, him for healing. And, and it says in Matthew chapter 20, verse 34, that he had compassion on them. But the Greek word there for compassion is splachnizomai, um, and I'm not a Greek expert, so I'm sure I just butchered that completely. But that Greek word means to be moved in one's intestines or guts. Okay? But I didn't get that when I read that Yeshua had compassion on them. Now, if it had said that Yeshua saw these blind men and his stomach ached with compassion. It hurt because he saw them. and It was like, oh, these guys, they just need the love of God. They need healing. And it hurt to see them that way. And it hurt his, physically. He felt it. That reads a little bit differently. Just like Yeshua was trying to tell us about joy. He was trying to tell us about compassion in this way. The Spirit is trying to help us connect the way we feel in our bodies and these emotions with our character. And when we disconnect these in, in our reading of Scripture, that has real consequences for us too. So I'm encouraging you in one way to get into some of the original languages as you study and, and look and see what God was trying to teach us and what he's trying to teach us about feeling, which is really hard for me to say as an engineer because I don't feel very much. <laughs> I'm a very left-brain person. I am a very, very left-brain person. All of this stuff that I'm teaching you, I am like, this is hard for me. It is so inefficient. And it's... <laughs> it, is, it is hard for me but I, I can feel this and I, and I need to learn this the right brain is where the internal and spatial sensations of our body are they're brought together and they are coordinated and they give us what one researcher calls an integrated sense of our body that our right brain governs our emotions our awareness of our bodies so in times of distress, in times of low joy, or general left brain dominant living, the integration dims or it breaks down, and we tend to lose our sense of feeling God's presence, his face shining upon us. We tend to lose that sense in times of distress, in times of, of low joy in our lives. And so... To conclude my message, um, my goal with what I started last week, and I'm going to continue on, is that here at Remnant of Israel, that we would begin to be intentional about right brain discipleship too, where we are trying to build joy in our relationships with one another and in our experiences and experience God with our whole bodies because we believe that God designed our bodies to feel him, to enjoy him. 
So you might ask, well, what am I supposed to feel? Like, I'm, I'm asking that, well, what am I supposed to, what am I supposed to feel here? Um, and the answer is not really exact, because different people feel different things, and God's joy in different ways. Um, so the important thing is that we're aware of something when we feel God's joy in our life, his face shining upon us, whether it's something like butterflies on our skin or electricity going through the back of our neck or a tightness in our gut or a sense of, sense of warmth and lightness. All of those things we, are positive feelings that we could be associating with God's joy. Um, now, if you're still wondering about this, okay, so um, what this might feel like, I want you to think about if you've ever um, been with a small child after they've been put to bed and then you go in to check on that small child in their crib late at night and maybe you just stand there and you're looking at them because they're just so precious and you just, and you just you have that feeling that comes over you of love for them, of, of warmth, and it might, your body might even tingle. You might feel something in your stomach. You just love them so much. You know, oh, it's that baby, you know. And uh, you can just feel that. You can feel in your body a reaction to God's face shining upon you too. You can feel it. We're meant to feel those things. We're meant to sense the emotional signals in our life in our flesh and in our bones. Don't you remember the response that Mary had? Mary visited her cousin, pregnant, right? And Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, and what happened? The baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's in Luke 141. Um, Her whole body was responding to an encounter with the living God. Our bodies are meant to. Joy is a visceral response to our relationship with the Lord. So my prayer for you today, as we go into 2022, is that we would be intentional about slowing down and feeling God's joy in our life. And again, I'm confessing to you, this is hard for me to do. Um... Lisa sometimes calls me Mr. Efficient Engineer. <laughs> That's me, Mr. Efficient Engineer. I'm not one who's like deeply in touch with my feelings, um, with how do I feel about something. But I, as much as anyone else, I need to feel God's joy in my life. And you need to feel God's joy, feel God's joy in your life. So I'm inviting you, as we're starting this new year, to journey together with me and as a community as we, as we work to feel God's joy in our lives, to, to, to replenish the depleted soil with the right nutrients. So we're going to do this with intentionality, with thinking about ways that God has put joy into our lives and encouraging others in those ways too, and sharing stories about how God has put joy into our lives and doing things together. And again, I, I feel like, for me, the, primarily this is going to happen in our poor houses. When we gather together, 
or, you gather, or when you gather together with other believers in the congregation in any way, because these are relational joy things that we do together. So whether you're in a poorhouse or not, the important thing is, is being able to gather together, and, it's, and it could be here on Shabbat morning, but it's more likely that you're going to have a better opportunity sometime else during the week to gather together outside of this place um, to have those joyful interactions. We should have them here for sure when we're here on, on Shabbat morning, but it's more likely that we're going to do this outside of these walls here and be doing them in the comfort of someone's home and sharing those joyful interactions together. So we're going to talk more about this next week or maybe in a few weeks. Next week is a Torah service, so we might not quite get to, to this part of it, but I do want to continue on in this theme of how we build joy in our own lives, joy in the Lord, and how we can do that for other people too and help them in this too. So that's where I'm going to close today, kind of on a little bit of a pause in that, not really um, with defined, uh, you know, left-brained actions of do this and do that. Um, but I would encourage you just to... to Think about and, and remember ways in which you have, ex, you have experienced joy and times that you have experienced joy in the Lord. Um, that's, a, that's an easy encouragement for me, for me to give you today is to, is to just reflect on times when you have had true joy in the Lord and you've experienced his warmth and his face shining upon you.